Herb Alpert, and Timo Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. It's his weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows as he does every week, Dave Cameron, in this edition of the program, a program uh, recorded live on tape from Washington, D.C., where Dave Cameron is currently staying, uh, what Dave Cameron intends to do endeavors to do is to analyze all baseball. As I say, Dave Cameron is in Washington, D.C. The reason he's there is because this past weekend, Fangraphs hosted a live event, a live event with a couple of panels, uh, one including some quantitative analysts from the Washington Nationals organization, uh, another one featuring Cameron himself, plus a couple of other distinguished guests. Dave Cameron uh, recapitulates. He provides a recapitulation of the, that live event, what occurred there, Etc. Uh, uh, that conversation ends with a, a brief discussion about Bryce Harper's future free agent contract, which involves the acquisition, it would appear, uh, by Bryce Harper of a lot of money. Uh, certain members within baseball not receiving as much money, though. Uh, Nathaniel Rowe wrote about this this week, and Dave Cameron comments upon it. Uh, scouts have recently, or at least one scout in particular, has recently sued Major League Baseball, not only for the club's lack of compensation uh both at the, the the minimum wage rate and also for overtime, uh, but also for suppression of uh, competition uh, for the services of other scouts. We discussed that uh, that as well. I asked Cameron to list in order uh, Major League Baseball's abominable practices uh, from worst to least egregious. We also look at uh, something perhaps more uh, traditional in terms of baseball analysis. I asked Cameron, who are the buyers and the sellers uh, with the uh, non waiver trade deadline looming it is looming not unlike a 19th century person attempting to craft some manner of garment it is looming finally uh dave dave cameron uh, of course is uh staying in dc staying with uh the dark overlord of fangraphs founder and ceo david appleman i ask uh, cameron what do you think david appleman will do with all of his fangraphs related income uh, Cameron answers this way. I mean, he's going to be able to buy a boat and an island, and, uh, you know, put a, a boat on an island. It is Fangraphs Audio. does feature managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. You know, you don't get to what the is your phone connection not great where you are. Yeah, it's a you know it's an apartment. So. Hey, so uh, wait, you're you're in DC now. I am in DC because you're there because you well, I guess for among other reasons, you attended the live event. You hosted, you helped to host the live event. Yeah, we did our uh, Fangraphs live thing in DC on Sunday, and then I just stuck around for a few days. Yeah, uh, and your wife feels about that? How? Um, you know, she's. Uh, you have a nanny? Happy to not have me around. Yeah. You have a nanny there at, back at the place? You have a grand, a, is there a grandparent? Uh, well, Amy, so she went to upstate New York for oh. the 4th of July and took uh. the grandparents and the baby. Uh, and they, so they were gone over the weekend and just got back yesterday. Okay. So they are, the nanny is doing more of the baby raising than usual today and tomorrow. But, yeah. uh, but for the most part, uh, we tried to plan these trips at the same time. So your child's accounted for is the point. Uh, as far as I know, I, I have not received word that he is missing. Okay. Uh, how do, well, tell me more about the live event and what happened at that. 
so we rented a back room space at a place called RFD, which is a uh, you know a sports bar type thing in in Washington. And uh, so we sold 100 tickets, and uh, it was a pretty nice little space. There's you know plenty of tables and rooms for people to sit. And so we did, uh, you know, kind of like mill around, hang out, talk baseball for a little while, and then uh, we did two Q&As. The first one was with Adam Cromey, who's the Assistant General Manager and Director of Baseball Operations for the Nationals, and then Sam Mondry-Cohen, who's the Director of Baseball Research. So these are like the two highest-ranking quants in the Nationals organization. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, so they did the kind of a national-specific Q&A for about an hour. And then we followed that up with uh, one with Dan Brooks of Brooks Baseball and Mike Farron of Sirius XM and myself where we just did general baseball discussion, and then we hung out and chatted again. So. Okay, yeah. And uh, I, well, when I've attended these sorts of things, and uh, more generally these sorts of panels, when uh, people who are associated directly with a team, uh, they tend to be a little bit close to the vest in terms of what they'll reveal, although – or maybe they'll speak in generalities. Was that largely the case, or uh, how's so? That I mean, you know, like they weren't uh, sharing uh, deep internal secrets, but they were maybe actually more open than I would have expected. I think there were you know, there was a specific question about kind of the structure of Max Scherzer's contract and how that came about because you know there, there was a lot of deferred money and it was a you know very interesting contract from an economics perspective and. Uh, Chromie, uh stated outright, like what has been suspected and reported in the media for a long time, and isn't you know it's not news necessarily, but uh, essentially confirmed that this was an ownership deal that then was the front office was told here are the terms, make a contract work, and kind of went through the process of what it looks like to structure a contract after you've already been told that it's done, <laughs> then you don't really get to negotiate any further. You just have to come up with all of the language and you know the no trade clause and kind of the things that go into a contract that aren't just years and dollars. Um, but once those years and dollars have been agreed to, now you're kind of arguing over the minutiae of the, the contract uh, under the framework of the fact that you already have an agreement, and there's a press conference in a couple of days. So it's interesting to hear uh, that perspective, which you don't necessarily think about, um, is how you come up with a, with a you know, $215 million contract uh, when the negotiations are over. Wait, so yeah, and part of that, right, was essentially the contract – the figure was what, what was the what was the what's the absolute figure? Uh, Scherzer got 210 million over seven years. Right, and there seemed to be it seemed to be important to the Scherzer camp uh, to to break the 200 million dollar threshold. Is that right? Yeah, the Scherzer camp being Scott Boris, right? And I think like Boris wanted to get over that 200 million dollar line. Right, and then uh, of course it's uh, the the Nationals would like it to be. Uh, so if it's important for, for, for Boris, et cetera, to get over 200 million, it's important to the Nationals to make that actually the, the least amount <clears throat> relative to present day dollars. Right. The, the structure of the deal made this contract be actually worth quite a bit less. I think when, I, when the deal was signed, I estimated using net present value calculations, the deal was worth actually somewhere around $185 million. So, you know, roughly $25 million off of the total value of the contract just because of the structure of the deal. And But we assume that uh, Boris was not was less interested. He, he, if, if, if he had signed like 195 in the equivalent of what, net, 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 net present value? Net present value, yeah. He was less interested in that than signing 210 for even if the net present value was lower. Yeah, I mean, so I think the only people who care about net present value realistically are nerds like me who actually uh, enjoy doing these kinds of calculations and then Scherzer himself, right? Like, so, like, uh, you know, Scherzer's the one receiving the money. 
So he cares about kind of the actual cash flow to his own wealth. But in terms of like, you know, Boris's uh, commission or, um, you know, the reputation of Scherzer's contract, like no one's ever going to reference the NPV value. Everyone's only ever going to say, oh, yeah, the $210 million contract. Uh, and so, you know, from a publicity standpoint, that number is the one that matters, not the NPV. Uh, from an accounting standpoint, the MPV matters and not the $210 million number. So, you know, you have different incentives on different sides. Uh, but from Boris's perspective, certainly the incentives are aligned for him to get the uh, kind of total number, regardless of MPV, as high as possible. So do you think, like, a player would, would be able to get, like, a, you know, like a $250, $210 million contract? Like, like if you're saying Nick Punto, for example, $210 million <laughs> over 210 years? Because you're still getting the $210 million figure. Yeah, it would actually be kind of fascinating to see how Major League Baseball would handle something like that uh, in terms of, you know, like the luxury tax. or Because, uh, you know, a large part of these calculations are done for accounting and, and luxury tax reasons, right? So, like, if you um, – because a lot of teams structure contracts where there's, like, a significant signing bonus, but it's spread out over multiple years, and t- people are like, well – if you're going to pay a signing bonus over three years, why wouldn't you just put it included in the salary? And, and there's, like, tax reasons for that, essentially. Because right. um, luxury tax treats signing bonuses and salaries differently. And so uh, a lot of the kind of the structure of these deals have to do with, uh, you know, tax both in baseball and, in, you know, just the federal government and the way they tax income. Um, so it gets into kind of tax law. And I think if if a team really just tried to, like, flaunt the rules and sign some player to, you know, and a contract through their age 240 season, <laughs> I would imagine Major League Baseball would be like, hey, hey, now, let's not do that. Well, has it, wasn't there at one point during hockey, didn't it behoove the teams to uh, to extend very long contracts to players? There's like I, believe, a, I believe for a while, yeah, hockey players were signing like 15 and 20-year deals. Yeah, right, because they could spread – there was some some combination of like bonus and then there was a- average annual value figured into it pretty greatly. Yeah, it yeah. was Ilya Kovalchuk at one point received a 15-year contract. Yeah, that's a long um, deal. And I don't think – he hasn't played for a while. He's in Russia. He's just in Russia now, so he's not playing for it anymore. So I will say, somebody asked me uh, while I was here, I don't remember exactly who it was, but someone while I've been in town asked about Bryce Harper's contract because, you know, Bryce Harper plays for the Nationals and is quite good and also quite young. And uh, I think I've thrown this number out in a chat before, uh, but my guess is that if he gets to free agency in four years, he sustains this, you know, not necessarily this level of production, but, you know, remains among or maybe baseball's best player. Uh, and then reaches free agency at 25 and is healthy and, you know, gets past some of the injury problems, I would not be surprised at all if he got a 15-year deal. I think the, the actual number I've thrown out of those, I guess, is 15 or 600 million. 15, 15, well, pardon me? 15 years for 600 million for 15 years. So 40 million a year for 15 years. Oh, that's a big, that's a lot of money. It, it's a lot of money, yeah. The, the, what, the largest contract right now is 350 million Stanton's deal, which was 12 years. So this is, you know, 250 million more than that. Oh, wow. Well, wow. so I'm, I'm guessing that Bryce Harper is going to destroy the record for the largest contract we've ever seen in baseball. Assuming he continues to play well and stays healthy. Yeah, uh, still quite young, Bryce Harper. I mean, younger. Yeah, he'll reach free, he'll reach free agency at 25. Oh, that's yeah, that's very quick. Uh, what are yeah, I mean, what is the typical age? This is a, a simple minded question, but when are when are what's the sort of range at which most players are hitting free agency? 
I think the average age of a free agent is 29 or 30. Uh, it's, it's, I think, been pushing up a little bit as we've seen a lot of these long-term extensions for good young players have. It's, it used to be more common where you'd see, you know, an Alex Rodriguez or, um, you know, even a Prince Fielder a couple of years ago where these guys were hitting, uh, free agency, Andrew Jones. Um, they, they hit free agency pretty early. Now I think we see, you know, basically every good young player, maybe except for Harper, uh, gets locked up pretty early and they buy out some free agent years and so they're under control to their original team for seven or eight or nine seasons instead of, you know, six. So I think, uh, it might even be 30 now, but it's definitely at least 29. Do you, do you envision, uh, as you, as you note, uh, most talented young players have signed a long-term contract or long-term extension even, be, you know, before they hit free agency? Do you, do you anticipate that happening with Bryce Harper? I don't. So I think in Harper's case, he does not really have any incentives to sign a long-term deal that buys out any free agent seasons because he got $15 million signing bonus uh, as the first overall draft pick in the year he was selected, right? So that's, you know, even after you give Boris the cut and, you know, or some of his cut and then the tax and, you know, you're still banking probably at least seven, maybe eight million dollars. Uh, and, you know, that he had that for a few years to live off of, hopefully invested some of it wisely. And uh, then he's now making, I think, three million or two and a half million this year. Uh, because there was uh, a disagreement over whether he'd be Super 2 eligible. So in order to avoid a big fight, uh, the Nationals signed him to a two-year contract this spring, pays him like $2.5 million in salary this year, and then I think 4 or $5 million in salary next year. So he's not going to have you know another $7.5 million, which, you know, taxes and Boris, whatever, you there's another 4 or $5 million, uh in actual cash in his bank account. And then he's going to go to arbitration twice. And, you know, say he gets... 35 or 40 million in those two arbitration rounds. Maybe, you know, 40 might be a little high, but say he gets 35 million, he gets 15 and 20 in his last two arbs, or, you know, 13 and 17 or something like that. Uh, he's gonna get, you know, 30, 35, maybe 40 million dollars, uh, additional. So, you know, again, taxes and Boris take a cut, but that's another 20, 25 million dollars in the bank. Uh, so now before he reaches free agency, he'll have earned in actual cash that he should have, uh, not just in like, you know, salary, uh, you should have like $50 million in the bank. Like for, <laughs> for him to need to sign a long-term deal and give up some free agency, uh, he would have to really have spent a lot of it on drugs and hookers. Well, right. Well, and we've seen this before, right, where the, you find players, uh, the, the reason they will give that team discount is because that, that first extension is allowing them to, to transition from a place where they're not essentially the rest of their lives are not financed entirely by their baseball career to the point where they are. And that's a, that's a, that's a big jump. Right. So there's, there's certainly a good argument to be made that like the first 10 million or the first 5 million even that you can actually stick in your own account, uh, are, these are like the life changing millions of dollars because now you don't need a post baseball career and your kids are going to, you know, be able to go to any college they want and your family is fairly well off and you know, like you can live a comfortable lifestyle by getting those first few million dollars in the bank pretty early in your career, uh, and then, you know, the marginal value of each additional million beyond that starts to decline, uh, maybe not super rapidly, but certainly the 50th million is not as valuable as the 40th million was, and certainly not as valuable as the 5th million was. Uh, and Harper is past the point at which the millions of dollars he's going to receive are going to have a significant tangible effect on his lifestyle. I mean, he's going to be able to buy a boat and an island, and a, you know, Put a, a boat on an island. I mean, he can do whatever he wants. Essentially, at this <laughs> point in his buy, life, just buy an island to put a boat on it. Yeah, right. Like I want a better spot for my boat to live, so just buy some land 
and then build a dock, and then he's got an island for his boat. I mean, right. these are the kinds of things that Bryce Harper can do. And, you know, the question is, <laughs> in his next contract, how many islands and how many boats is he going to be able to afford? What is the, uh, what's the sort of marginal gain for a, for a person between the 590th and, and 600th million dollar? Uh, at that point, it's all bragging rights, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think that the, the point of the contract that Harper's going to get is not going to be about enriching his account. Mm-hmm. It is going to be about establishing as high a bar as humanly possible for every other player to try and get pulled up by. I think this is essentially the, the agents and the player, the players association's argument is that the top line free agents establish a baseline from which every other free agent negotiates against. So if Harper can push himself up to 600 million, then every free agent who comes after him can say, well, I'm half of Bryce Harper, I get 300 million. Uh, it's not necessarily a strong argument and it doesn't logically hold, uh, but it essentially, uh, Harper and a lot of these premium free agents do establish some kind of, uh, baseline for other free agents to say, hey, that's the going rate now, and, uh, you know, I'm gonna take a percentage of the going rate, uh, and theoretically all major league salaries can get, in, or at least free agent salaries, can get inflated up if Harper, uh, gets a really massive contract. So when a player, especially a star player we're talking about here, is signing a contract, he, he, I suppose he could sign it with merely himself in mind, but there are a number of, uh, forces compelling him to sign it for different reasons as well. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no question that, you know, when a player of this stature reaches free agency, he's no longer just negotiating for himself. And I think we've seen this, you know, the last really monstrous contract that, like, blew the doors off of Major League Baseball's kind of understanding of what players got paid was the Alex Rodriguez contract with the Rangers. He signed for $250 million when premium free agents were signing for $40 million or $50 million. I mean, this was like a, you know, order of magnitude more than anybody else was getting. Uh, I think the Mariners offered him, you know, 90 million or something. So like the Rangers almost tripled that offer. Uh, and I think, you know, we saw, um, kind of an explosion of salaries after that. It's not necessarily a cause and effect thing, but I think Rodriguez was pretty clear that, you know, when he wanted to get traded out of, uh, Texas, you know, one of the places he was considering getting traded to and was kind of involved in the negotiations was Boston and, and they were trying to figure out how the Red Sox were essentially trying to figure out if they could rework his deal in order to have him take less money, and the Players Association basically said, no, you can't do that. Even if Rodriguez wants to go to Boston, wants to play for the Red Sox, we're not going to allow him to take less money in order to do it. You have to figure out a way to restructure the contract so that the value of the deal doesn't go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Rodriguez essentially ended up in New York because Boston didn't want to take the full value of the contract. Right. And then and the New York was probably the only team that could afford such a deal. Yeah, I mean the Red Sox probably, you know, they had the financial resources to do it. They just didn't, they didn't want to. I mean, you know, this contract was so large, it turned out to actually be a pretty good deal. I mean, Rodriguez was a very good player during during that tenure, uh, but I mean the contract was just so much larger than anything else in the books. I think the Red Sox looked at it and said, you know, we'll just go sign David Ortiz and Manny Ramirez and uh, you know all these guys instead. Yeah, well, it worked out for uh, worked out for everybody. Um, yeah, maybe less so for the Yankees because they made the mistake of giving A-Rod another 10-year contract after that. But. Right. Um, here's a question. Uh, talking about uh, pay, we're, we're obviously on the high end of the spectrum here. Nathaniel Grow published today at the site uh, a piece regarding um, the hiring and pay, uh, pay practices that uh, MLB teams utilize with regard to scouts. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you got the opportunity to look at this. I did. Um, it's dim. Uh, it's dim because uh, so what the the basic idea is that uh, scouts um, 
um, in the lawsuit, Wyckoff, I guess Wyckoff versus the Office of uh, Commissioner of Baseball, um, suing suing the league uh, because they're not they're essentially um, like they're like some minor leaguers as well. They're not being paid uh, for or at least at a level commensurate with minimum wage, and they're also not being um, compensated for overtime. Um, right, and also their ability to the for other teams to compete for their for their skills uh, appears to be uh, suppressed artificially by by the league as well. Uh, right, that's the argument. Yeah, right, that's the argument. Yeah, uh, it, it's not it's not a shocking argument though. I mean, reading about it, it says, well, this sounds like something that could be happening. Right? <laughs> You're right. I mean, if you know people who work in baseball, you know, like overtime is not a thing that uh, exists for full-time employees. Like, no one's counting the hours that a scout is on the road, or that you know the uh, scouting director is planning, putting in, seeing all, you know, seeing all the prospects they might draft and putting together the board. Like, no one is sitting there filing, like, oh, I worked on 96 hours this week, so I get two and a half paychecks. Like, that doesn't happen. Yeah, and it actually seems like from uh, from Gro's uh, characterization of the lawsuit, it and the and um, Major League Baseball's likely avenues for uh, refuting it, it doesn't seem as though they're going to argue that scouts are are making more than minimum wage or are being compensated for overtime. They're going to make the the argument that they fall under a certain sort, either either the the teams for which they work it counts as what like a recreational activity, which yeah. uh, which uh, which presents an exemption an exemption, or alternatively that they are what it, there's a special like. Um, Another sort of exemption where if you are a profession, some, some manner of professional or executive, you would not, yeah, executive, administrative, or professional capacity, that would be another sort of exemption. Right. Um, but they're not, they're not refuting the claim that, that these people are making only $15,000 for hours, for more than 40 hours of work a week. Yeah, but I think, you know, like one, one of the giant problems in baseball for people who work in baseball is that the supply and demand is so far out of whack, at least in leaning towards supply uh, of, of available people who want to do this. And, you know, I think I wrote my uh, Hardball Times annual article uh, last year or the year before. One of the more recent Hardball Times annual articles I wrote, uh, I guess it was two years ago, uh, was about this huge supply of kind of upper middle class or upper class educated, you know, well-educated um, kind of rich uh, uh, usually white, um, uh, male, uh, employee that is flooding the, uh, Major League Baseball with resumes. And so you have, like, you know, anytime you go to any of these events, say, Red Olympics Conference or the Saber Seminar or, you know, even Fangraphs Live, it is, like, predominantly white, middle class or upper class, uh, males who would love to work in baseball and they're willing to do so for very low rates. And, you know, the same applies in scouting where it's not necessarily the same pool of people, but there's a huge group of people who think it would be worth taking a significantly below market price in order to do something they enjoyed. And so they're, you know, from a, a human perspective, this makes sense, right? Like people are saying, okay, especially if I'm already coming from a wealthy family or I already have some kind of financial independence, I would rather enjoy my job than just try and maximize my bankroll uh, and so people are taking, you know, jobs that they will enjoy, or at least they think they will enjoy, um, in exchange for dramatically reduced salaries. And, and you know, because there's such a large supply of people who want to work in baseball, teams don't really have to pay anything, and they take advantage <laughs> of that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I suppose the argument would be that you they still have to be 
they still have to be paid according to uh, you know legal requirements. Yeah, and this is one of the questions. Is like you know we saw this with uh, interns a few years ago. I think but, but prior to maybe 2009 or 2010, it was pretty common for major league teams to have an army of unpaid interns working uh, a lot of hours, well you know well beyond 40 hours. And these were you know 19, 20 year old college kids who would come in for the summer and essentially get treated as employees. They weren't training. They weren't kind of filling the role of what an intern is supposed to be. They were doing actual employee work and they were replacing employees and, and these interns were, you know, uh, creating value for the organization for no money or almost no money. Uh, and then Congress has passed some rules. It's like, hey, you guys aren't, aren't allowed to do that anymore. And now most major league teams will have like three interns and they actually get to go home at, you know, seven o'clock at night on a weeknight if the team isn't at home. So, you know, I think things have improved, at least for the uh, baseball operations interns uh, over the last five years or so, but uh, the scouting community rules uh, have not caught up. Right. Uh, This is a – where are we at right now with regard to Major League Baseball – if we were to make a like a like a top five or ten list of uh, ab- their abominable practices, <laughs> uh, where, where, where does this fit? And like, what's the what's the what are the the sort of uh, most notable issues so far as that's concerned? I mean, I think for me, the number one issue and abominable things that Major League Baseball does is going to be the international signing of, you know, teenagers. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Kylie's written about this recently, in fact, but, you know, Ben Badler's covered this extensively at Baseball America. Um, the way that Major League Baseball handles the, uh, importation of, you know, 13, 14, 15 year old kids is atrocious. And, and that's like the biggest thing that I think is like a stain on Major League Baseball. Uh, this ranks, Behind that, mm-hmm. um, we're still talking about player, people who are being compensated at a living wage, maybe not a good living wage, but they're being paid enough to, you know, uh, at least buy some food and rent an apartment, uh, where the kids in internationally are just being, you know, taken advantage of left and right. Um, but this is, you know, an issue. And I think, you know, as Major League Baseball's revenues take off and this becomes a very kind of, uh, rich man sport where everyone is, uh, profiting, uh, eventually the employees of these companies that are making hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, should see some of the gains. And I don't think there's, uh, anything wrong with, you know, the labor side that isn't the players, uh, also angling for a larger share of the pie that Major League Baseball is creating. Is this there, obviously players, uh, or at least Major League players can, um, can file these grievances by way of the union. Is there what is the what is the recourse? I mean, is this you know through a through a state court? Is that essentially the recourse for other sorts of employees? Yeah, I mean, I think this is right. This is the kind of lawsuit is the recourse because there isn't a union for scouts. There isn't a union for baseball operations officials. They don't have a collective bargaining uh, power. They don't have a seat at the table. Uh, I think generally, if people are unhappy with their lot in life in baseball, they can quit. And I think that's the team's perspective generally <laughs> is like. We have hundreds and hundreds of resumes of people who would love to take your job and maybe even take a pay cut to do it. So if you're not happy, there's the door. Right. And uh, what what would happen? Is there such thing? I mean, could there be such thing as a as a scout strike? Uh, what would that look like if it were the case? Yeah, it would be interesting to see. I, mean, I think you'd ha- you'd have to do it essentially at a time where it was most harmful to the organization. So. <laughs> maybe the last week of May and the beginning of June, right before the draft, if like all of the scouts and amateur, like all the amateur scouts who had covered, uh, you know, all the high school and college games just agreed to not show up for draft prep. 
uh, and so teams had to essentially draft based on, like, uh, I don't know, Baseball America's rankings or the Major League Baseball Scouting Bureau or something. Uh, that would, you know, send a pretty significant message. Uh, I don't think that's particularly likely. It, would it also have to, uh, it would also have to require the involvement of what the most, like the most notable scout, like super scouts, right? Whoever the super scouts are. Well, I think you, you basically have to have like the scouting directors, like the 30 scouting directors of each team would have to collude and, or, you know, kind of get together and be like, hey, look, we're going to take a huge stand and we're probably all going to lose our jobs. Uh, but, you know, we're in charge of these guys and we feel like we're all being taken advantage of. So we're going to take all of the people who work for us, all of our area scouts and cross checkers and we're all going to leave. But, but I think without the scouting directors being involved, if like just the area guys left or something, the scouting directors would, uh, you know, still make selections. So like they would have <coughs> enough pre-filed reports that they would just, you know, make it work without the area guys. They would do a worse job, but they would be able to at least, like, call out some names, whether they were the right names or not, who knows. But they would, you know, the draft would go on. If the all 30 scouting directors left and took all the area guys, I think at that point, you'd have some chaos. It's There's also a, a part of what might sort of loosely called masculine <coughs> identity, uh, of which there is no shortage among uh, baseball scouts, probably. Uh <coughs> One sort of central quality of that is they is uh, perhaps not complaining. Uh, this would be the sort of person, or it's considered a sort of against the, against propriety to complain, uh, to complain about doing too much work, um, really to bemoan one's lot in life. And so it seems like that that could be one of the impediments to the, uh, to the scouts actually, um, or for example, in this case, opting into a lawsuit like this. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most notable things about the culture of working in baseball is this idea uh, that you're essentially, your first five years probably are a a weeding process, right? So they're just giving you work that doesn't even necessarily have a huge impact on anything. It's not that you're, you know, just busy filing stuff that no one will ever see, but a lot of what you're doing is just to prove that you have the perseverance to stick around long enough, uh, you know, to show that, you know, you can kind of survive um, doing mundane tasks for long periods of time, for yeah. long hours, and give up all of your vacations and all of your free time uh, as to show your dedication. It's almost like a, you know, long-term hazing, uh, not necessarily like people are throwing, you know, poo at you or something, but you're just, you know, uh, sacrificing yourself to show your superiors that you're committed to making this your lifestyle. And then after five years or six years or whatever it is, if you're still around, and you haven't been fired or replaced by someone else who will work harder than you for less money, uh, then you might just start to climb the ladder and actually get some real authority. Yeah, right. It, I mean, it's what it's like. Uh, you hear about, I've had some friends who've joined the corporate law firms before too. Right. Uh, in their first like three to five years, there's just it's just like a haze of work. You're awake yeah. all the time. This is not a baseball specific problem, right? This is you know hedge funds and venture capital and basically yeah, all these super competitive. Startups, uh, you know, they all kind of have the same idea. Like, you know, if you want to succeed in this industry, you'll work 90 hours a week. That seems like too many hours. I didn't even know there were that many hours in a week. Yeah. Yeah. I think if we added maybe like your month's worth of hours, we hey, could fit you hey, into like a baseball hey, operation. Easy. Easy, Dave Cameron. Let's address one more thing before you fulfill your obligation here. The, what is it today? It's July 7th today. July 7th? And uh, the what the non-waiver trade deadline 
looms? Does it loom yet? Is it officially 20, loomed? 24 days away. That, that feels looming to me. Loomish. It's the right month. We're in the right month. Yeah. Um, uh, what's, uh, what, what, who, how many definite sellers you have? Like, I've just scrolled, I've just sorted here on their playoff odds. There are, I think, 12 teams that have less than a 10% chance of making a divisional series. Is that, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's too high of a cutoff. I think you, for like a definite seller, you gotta be under five. Okay, alright, well that's, yeah, And I think uh, there's like, what, seven of those, maybe? Yeah, uh, seven, eight, yeah. I mean, that goes down pretty uh, quickly, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so I think, like, the tricky thing is, though, like, in, in that five to ten range, you're gonna have teams like the A's and Rangers, who are both, you know, the A's, uh, at least by base runs, are a very good team who have just performed exceptionally poorly in the clutch, and they've played better lately, so there's reasons for really being to not sell, at least yet, and maybe not sell at all, and the Rangers are hanging around 500, and, uh, you know, have some big expensive contracts and don't necessarily want to blow things up. They certainly see themselves as, you know, 2016 contenders and maybe 2015 contenders if they can get hot again. So these kinds of teams that are, you know, north of 3 or 4% but less than 10% maybe should be sellers, but there's some incentives for them to not do so, and I, I would guess that teams in that range, uh, you know, I think the Padre is probably in there too, they're not going to dramatically sell. Uh, and the White Sox, I think, are maybe the best example of this, right, is like, a team that has very, very few options for contending this year should almost certainly be a seller, but only has a few core pieces that other players, other teams would really want. And Chris Sale and Jose Abreu, they don't want to move those guys because they want to contend again next year, and those guys are under contract at below market rates. So instead, they're going to sell Jeff Samarzja and you know Alexi Ramirez and guys that aren't aren't that great and aren't going to you know make huge impacts for the teams that are buying so even the teams that are selling or should be selling are not going to be selling the things that you know you might want to be buying from them what are the teams so this is a this is a recurring theme around this time of year it's actually an advantage for those teams that uh um, appear likely say have uh say 50 percent or above odds of of uh, qualifying for the divisional series those teams are actually an advantage if they have one obvious weakness I think we might have seen this. There might have been a good White Sox team in recent memory. I think I forget who they were playing at third base, but it was going badly. It was going really badly, yeah. um, and then it was an easy. Uh, it was a, it was an advantage almost at that point because they they had a chance of qualifying for the playoffs, and they had a, a obvious area where where they could upgrade. Are, are there any situations like that among among the contenders at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think the Pirates are probably, or the Pirates and Cardinals both are probably a pretty good example of this. Is like both teams have nothing at first base. Uh, you know, Matt Adams got hurt with the Cardinals, and Pedro Alvarez apparently doesn't know how to field the position uh, after moving from third base to first base, and he forgot to hit. Uh, so both teams have glaring replacement level holes at first base, which is supposed to be a pretty easy position to fill, especially if you're going to run out some kind of platoon or something. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard to find a you know, decent uh, hitting first baseman who can, you know, at least catch the ball when it's thrown in his direction. Um, so I think, you know, those are two teams that are, you know, probably headed for the postseason. The Cardinals almost certainly headed for the postseason and have one pretty obvious glaring weakness that they should be able to upgrade. The, they, and this is kind of the stars and scrubs theory, right, is if you have a whole bunch of really good players and then some weaknesses, it's not that hard to, you know, go from a zero-win player to a two-win player or at least it's easier than to go from a two-win player to a four-win player, so the kind of the stars and scrubs team can upgrade more easily. I, I just don't know how true it is. Like if it, when I wrote or yesterday about Adam Lind, this is like maybe the best hitter on the market and certainly the best first baseman on the market. Uh, and you know you have two teams with a glaring hole at first base, and Lind is like kind of the only option. Like the team that doesn't get Adam Lind is going to have to trade for Mike Napoli. 
and and like there's no one besides those two. So um, I'm not so sure that it is easy to find a you know freely available low cost two win player in July as people think. Yeah, but what about if you're going from minus two just to zero? Even that's that's an upgrade. Well, no, no one no one's actually playing a minus two win true talent player. You might have a guy who's performing that badly, but you could go from minus two to zero just by continuing to play that guy and having him regress to the mean. Right. Okay. Uh, the Houston Astros. Uh, represent a strange case um, in terms of this because they have, I think they're like fourth or fifth in, in terms of odds of making the playoffs at this point. Yeah. Um, I think it was, uh, I think everyone probably thought it, 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 or it was reasonable to assume that they would be better this year than they had been last year. Uh, I think it would have been uh, just as reasonable to assume that they would not be, you know, that they would not have the fourth best chance of qualifying for the playoffs among all major league teams at this, at this uh, time of the season. Uh, what what do you envision their next month to look like in terms of in terms of upgrading? Because they have like they still have like a fleet of minor leaguers. Um, they do. Yeah, I mean, I think like the interesting thing from the Astros' perspective, they also have a very clear need in those in the starting rotation. They need at least one and maybe even two pitchers. Uh, Dallas Keuchel is very good. Lance McCullers has pitched very well, but uh, also uh, doesn't have a very long track record and is very young and might not last well into the postseason. Um, and then, you know, they've got a lot of question marks, uh, you know, Scott Feldman and, you know, the, the back end of the rotation is not good. So they need, uh, probably at least one starting pitcher. Uh, and I think, you know, it will be interesting to see, uh, how aggressive they're going to be in going after kind of the top line guys. Like Johnny Cueto, Jeff Smarja, uh, Cole Hamels are the three pitchers out there who, uh, you know, are clearly available and are probably going to be the three guys that everyone's fighting over. Uh, but I think I wouldn't be surprised at all if Scott Casimir, if the A's sell, is the guy who ended up in Houston. He's from there. He's a free agent at the end of the season. He's not going to cost as much as those three. And he might be, you know, on an innings pitch basis, better than Samarja, uh, even if he's not as durable. Uh, there's more risk there, but he might actually be a better pitcher than Samarja. So I wouldn't be surprised if we saw the Astros kind of go for the middle uh, rather than aiming for the top tier. Um, and I do think, you know, as much as uh, there's been speculation about the, the Astros being – interested in Hamels, I don't see them taking on a big contract. Because I think they want to have the financial flexibility to, you know, spend big in free agency now that kind of maybe the stigma of going to Houston and playing for this terrible team with terrible PR is starting to wear off. If they're the division winners with Carlos Correa and some good young talent, George Springer and Altuve, and they can sell this a little bit better, I wouldn't be surprised if they wanted to retain their long-term financial flexibility to make a run at David Price or someone like that. So I don't necessarily see them taking on Hamill's contract or even some other, you know, Troy Tulowitzki or one of these, uh, you know, large contract guys who might get moved this summer. I bet you they go more for rentals like Casimir, you know, uh, players in that tier. Well, with regard to pitchers, uh, it makes sense, doesn't it, as, as you make your way towards the postseason and, and certainly during the postseason to, to target players who are going to be better for you on a per-inning basis as opposed to offering – um, you know, decent numbers over, over, you know, like six or seven innings. Yeah. So yes and no. So right. So like there's certainly value to taking an upside flyer and saying, you know what? The postseason's a little bit of a, a lottery ticket. Um, we want to maximize our chance of having excellent performance in order because excellent performance is, you know, like what Madison Bumgarner did can make up for a lot of weaknesses elsewhere. And so if you say, okay, we're basically just going to buy for upside, um, maybe a guy like Casimir, is really appealing because his upside is, is quite high and he can really pitch quite well in a, in a postseason series if he's healthy. But I, th- I think there's also maybe an argument for a floor, right? Like raising your floor if you're a team like the Astros might be 
uh, actually more important because really the key is getting to the postseason uh, because the postseason is such a, you know, a random lottery ticket. Uh, or if you just say, okay, if I'm in the Astros' perspective, and I think, like, the difference between Johnny Cueto and Scott Casimir might move my chances of winning a playoff series a couple of percentage points. Uh, but obviously, you can't win the series if you don't get there. Maybe you're better off saying, okay, I'd, I don't want the risk of trading for Casimir, and then he goes down, and I, you know, can't trade for anyone else. And, you know, he Casimir has a significant injury history. If you make a trade for Casimir on July 31st, and on August 7th, he, you know, strains his oblique and he's out for the year, you can't really go kind of make another deal, at least not one for a good pitcher. So Can you I, just get I, Scott Casimir and then just put him on a couch somewhere until the playoffs roll around? Well, I think you, I think in the Astros case, they don't have such a large lead that they can just assume they're going to win the division. Like, uh, you know, I think there's a case to be made. They're still maybe even the third or fourth best team in that division. I don't think there's any great team there, but Oakland might be better and Anaheim might be better. And, you know, like the projections still like the Mariners. And, uh, I think you can say, you know, the, this is probably going to be a close race and it's not so obvious that the Astros should be building a team for October as much as they should be building a team for August and September. And I think we saw the A's last year kind of, you know, made a lot of reinforcements to go get John Lester and Justin Marginal because they knew a second half collapse was coming, or at least they suspected it. They thought they were overachieving. And I think the Astros, to some extent, are overachieving, and, and part of their acquisition should be to try and stave off the impending regression in order to try and, you know, hang on to their division lead. Yeah. All right. Uh, it does appear now as though you have fulfilled your obligation to Hooray. Fangraphs Audio. Yeah. You're gonna. You're still in D.C. What are your uh, any big plans for you? Uh, well, I'm actually gonna go to the Nationals game again tonight. It's uh, Johnny Cueto versus Max Scherzer, oh, so yeah. this is a pretty good game to stick around for. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and th- and then I will drive back to North Carolina tomorrow. Okay. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, well, stick around for one moment though. Uh, but uh, for the for the purposes of the program, uh, we'll say goodbye. So thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. That has been Dave Cameron. Uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, I am Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.